Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the same question all over the world. Should or shouldn't we open our economies? Given the fact that if we do open them, the likelihood is more people will die from uh, the coronavirus. The real question then is how much are our lives worth? How much is your life worth? How much is my, my life worth? Uh, one fellow who's been really grappling with this question, this existential, the ultimate existential question or existential economic question of the value of life is Howard Stephen Friedman. He teaches at Columbia University. He's a health economist and uh, quite fortuitously, he has a new book out, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. Uh, Howard, uh, did you organize all this so that we would have the coronavirus crisis when your book came out? <laughs> Most certainly not. Uh, but but your point is valid that people are now thinking about how human life is valued from a dollar and cents point of view more than they have in, in a decade. How it is, is it a crass question, uh, particularly the way in which uh, Donald Trump seems to articulate? A lot of people are, are really disgusted with the idea that we could put any kind of uh, financial uh, amount on a human life. Um, is, is it something as a health economist and in some ways a philosopher, is it something we should even be contemplating? Well, I, I'm very much grounded in how the real world works. Um, and in the real world, governments, businesses, health insurance companies, throughout all different industries, dollar figures are placed on human life. They happen in the court systems. They happen in so many areas. And I think it's critical to recognize that fact and then understand how are these calculations done? Because my perspective is that sometimes they're highly unfair. So I think it's a critical conversation to have. I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's one we should avoid. I think it's one we should have in the open. Are all lives, Howard, worth the same? You know, we're having this ongoing debate, maybe not as public as some people might like, about the value, perhaps, of a, of, of a sick eighty-five-year-old versus uh, the, the life of a sick. 85-year-old man who's overeaten and drank too much and not taken responsibility for his health versus the life of a healthy 20-year-old worker. Are all lives worth the same? Deep question to start with. Um, it really depends on the perspective, the perspective of who's doing the calculation and for what purpose. So if we take the government's perspective, and what I mean by that is regulatory agencies, well, they have come up with an answer, and their answer is yes, all lives are worth the same. If you go back to when uh, the Bush 43 was president, 
the Environmental Protection Agency did try to introduce a lower value of life for older people. It was termed uh, by many the senior death discount. The public was public was livid, and the EPA backed off. To this day, all regulatory agencies value all lives the same, regardless of age, regardless of wealth, regardless of what their sex is, any of those factors, roughly at about $10 million per life. Is that, though, are we being honest with ourselves? Because if this, if this disease was taking the lives of four-year-olds versus the lives of 84-year-olds, healthy four-year-olds versus sick 84-year-olds, I think we would be much more traumatized as a culture, wouldn't we? Well, I think you may be right. Uh, I don't want to say it too explicitly because... This well, you can. Bad. You're on my show, Howard. You can <laughs> be as explicit as you possibly can. Shout it. Well, well I, I, what I mean by that is if you look specifically at the health systems, and in health systems in other countries, they do look at metrics such as the incremental cost per life year or the quality-adjusted cost per life year. So they're, they're looking at these in that manner. Um, the U.S. government doesn't generally do that. And what I mean by that is, for example, in the Affordable Care Act, there was a specific provision that said that you can't allocate resources using a criteria such as expected longevity. So you'll find many countries really are explicitly using criteria like that. And the U.S. Uh, doesn't explicitly use that one as a government policy, but also insurance companies tend to make their own decisions. And in the real world, practically, hospitals that are overwhelmed are making decisions, um, sometimes on their own and sometimes with guidance. Now, back to your, the point that you made, Massachusetts issued um, voluntary guidance that was very much in line with what you just described, which basically said, if you must make this um, choice, the, the Sophie's choice of which life to save, then they suggested to favor those who are younger, healthier. But once again, I don't think, I don't think as a federal government we have any policies like that. In fact, we have laws that prevent that. How does, how does this play out in terms of a privatized health system, which we in the United States have, versus the more nationalized systems in Europe or Canada. Do you think that um, when a health system is nationalized, when it's top-down versus sort of built as a market system, um, we can be a little bit more liberal and ambitious when it comes to the valuation of life? I think that it can play a role. Now, to be clear, the U.S. system is a hybrid. It We have part of our system in which providers are employees, right, of our, our military system. We have part of our system in which the government is the insurer in our uh, Medicare system. We have part of it which is a private sector and part of it which is out of pocket, substantially more than most other wealthy countries. So we are a bit of a mix, and it makes it difficult for us to compare. But if you look at, for example, purely uh, systems that are really dominated by the public sector, uh, often they might have a more aggressive approach. Uh, and you know, I, I spend a lot of time in Asia, and I'm very aware of how Australia, how Taiwan, 
how South Korea has addressed this COVID issue. And I think part of it is related to the strength of the scientific advisors in, in the national government. Some of it is their understanding of how bad this could have been because they've gone through many of these uh, situations before. But some of it may be because of the strength of the public health system and that shared sense of ownership and responsibility. So it, it might be playing a role. Howard, uh, leaving aside the value of life for the moment, uh, as you say, you, you, you're a health economist who's, who's spent a lot of their time in, in Asia. Um, to put it politely, uh, how, uh, how ha- has America, the American response to COVID, has it really been a massive fuck up compared to Korea or Singapore or Taiwan, are the East Asian health systems, leaving aside China, which obviously is unique and, and carries and brings with it a lot of other problems, but the, the the smaller health systems, Korea, as I said, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, are they the models for uh, combating the coronavirus? I would agree that they have done a great job, but I would broaden it. I would recognize that Australia and New Zealand have also done an excellent job. Uh, They're not perfect comparisons, right? The United States has about 330 million people. We We are not an isolated island. So there are differences in the situation. But I think it's very clear from the data that when you look at how the government policies were to respond, how aggressive they were, and then the results, and the results specifically in terms of not just the spread of cases, but the deaths, it's so substantially different. And so I think there are going to be a lot of lessons learned. I'm a big, big fan of leading practices. Uh, I had a book in 2012 that was all about what could the United States learn from other wealthy countries. It was called Measure of a Nation. And I think that when you scan the world, there are so many things that were done well. Uh, and, and, and it's not just the aggressive testing, tracing, and, and, and the quarantining, but policies that were ahead of the game. We haven't learned anything, though. Well, the Americans haven't learned anything, have they, Howard? They clearly didn't read your book, because would it be fair to say that the Americans have responded, or at least the federal government has responded in, with a kind of a, a unique inefficiency? There are more cases, still complete chaos, still fundamental discord between the states and the federal government. The president is continually promising ubiquitous testing, and we don't seem to be getting that. So is America really screwed up in this? And does this reflect the profound dysfunctionality, perhaps not of American society, but certainly of its health system? I think that this particular case has really just shown a spotlight on the huge issues with our health system, but it's also broader. It's it's broader about society because when you start looking at the inequalities and the inequities, those who are suffering the most, not just economically, but health-wise, you're seeing once again, those who are often the least privileged, who are most at risk of contracting the disease and of financial ruin. Whether they get a severe case or a mild case, vast majority of people who are uh, working class are having a very difficult time being able to adjust. You know, For me, I'm comfortably able to work remotely. Uh, it's, it's a privilege 
many people are not able to do so. So I think we're really seeing a lot of these issues coming up, and it's a very unfortunate American experience. The question for me is, what really will be the lessons learned from it? Will we make substantial changes in our health system? Will we make substantial changes in the factors that leave some populations far more vulnerable than others? I guess I'd be more optimistic about some changes in the health system, but fundamental changes in American society, I'm not sure. I really don't see uh, that happening based on COVID. Howard, what's your response to the the back to work movement, the people who are arguing that uh, quarantine is un-American and that it's irresponsible of government and politicians to disallow work, to be shutting down the economy? Well, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time in Asia. Not every country went into quarantine. Uh, Taiwan never went into quarantine, for example. we're seeing an active test right now with Sweden, who uh, they reduced the size of the crowds, but they never went into quarantine. And right now they have substantially more cases and deaths than some of the other Scandinavian countries. The United States is huge, right? It's a very large country. And in areas where there are really hotspots, I, I live in New York City. If you don't go into quarantine, the death rate will be so substantially higher. There's no question. But perhaps in some parts of the United States, having a measured approach, maybe that's not unreasonable at all. And in fact, even in parts of New York State, we're talking about how can we open up parts of the economy in a safe way. I think the key is really to not underestimate the risk of an area that currently looks like it has low infection, of taking off. So if you have policies, procedures, measures in place to keep people safe, to test, to trace, and isolate, then I think it's possible. But blanket statements of, well, there's not a lot of cases here, so we should open, uh, I think it's it's a Russian roulette that, that people are playing with that. Howard, what should be the value we place on life? We know what it is. People are, some people are are, are trying to do the economics. Some people say that we shouldn't do economics. But in your view, what should be the value we place on life? So I think the first thing that I would start with is um, the reality. The reality is people do put these price tags on human life all the time. And, And I think the people who say, oh, we shouldn't do it, they're, they're either choosing to ignore or they're simply unaware of that fact. Uh, I think it's important to not have a value of life driven by income. And let me explain that for a second, then I'll get closer to where I think we should be. If you have a value of life based on income, and that's very much what happens in civil courts when they look at settlements, it's very much a consideration when a for-profit company tries to decide whether they will invest in safety or not. They're looking at how much will they lose in a civil court judgment and regulatory fines. So income plays a role. In our particular case, the regulatory agencies do not. And we mentioned this before, all lives are valued equally. Uh, The number that I mentioned before, that 10 million, it's not perfect. There's so many challenges in coming up with these estimates, but it's a big number. It's a big enough number so that the risk to the U.S. population of COVID actually justifies the trillions and trillions of dollars that have been lost. It's in that scale. 
So my perspective is um, safety really is a, a first and foremost, but that safety calculation can happen at the same time as a value of life is inserted. I would offer, use the one that the regulatory agencies have been using. They've been using it for well over 10 years, it adjusted for uh, inflation. But even though it's not a perfect factor, it gives a guidance and it gives a consistency with how we make our other decisions. Decisions about the safety of a car, the decisions about the safety of your water, the decisions about the safety of the pollutants from a factory. So bring this into the conversation that we've been having for decades and bring it in with the understanding that the uncertainties are massively more. And that's really what I think, Andrew, makes this so different is if you ask someone to figure out what's the risks associated with more arsenic in the water, they could figure out what's the incremental morbidity and mortality. I think the models here, you've got great professionals doing their best, but there's such huge uncertainties in the predictions that you have to build that big confidence interval into the estimates. Build that in and have measured approaches that make sense. Now, here in the heart of New York City, no, <laughs> we, we shouldn't be opening up gyms and inviting 20, 30 people to get together at a bar for celebrations. Not now. This isn't the time. But can small mom and pop stores perhaps open up and you know in a with the controls of of masks and and all the other protections try to restart a little bit of their business i think if you put in the right policies in a place where there's very very low incidence rates and prevalence rates i think that should be fine and howard coming back to this question of different values of life do you think that we should be valuing the life of a an 84-year-old and a four-year-old differently? In the specific case of how to protect a life, my personal opinion is I would aim for equality. And I know that's not a popular opinion amongst everyone. And this is where it's important to emphasize there's, there's math and there's philosophy. Um, I do a lot of math. Uh, but at the same time, there's a personal philosophy. My philosophy is when at all possible, start with the idea that all values, uh, all lives are valued equally. And it's not always, it's not always a perfect analysis. Here's where the, it really f draws away. Here's where it breaks down. To me, it's not about the four-year-old and the 85-year-old. It's the extreme of lining up your Nobel Prize winner and your mass murderer. And at that point, I have to say, well, no, I don't value these lives equally. And I will have to make some decisions. But that's, you know, I think with any idea, any theory, take it to its extremes and you'll see where it breaks. That's where it truly has broken for me. No question. These are profound questions, eternal questions, existential questions, often confronted best not by scientists or behavioral economists, but actually by writers and philosophers. Dostoevsky certainly comes to mind when it comes to thinking about the value of human life. Finally, Howard, what book or books should people be reading when they're stuck at home to think about these issues? Of, of course, from your own, but uh, about the valuation of human life, how much should, should it be valued and, and whether or not it should indeed be valued and whether or not all lives are worth the same? So uh, a few books that I would recommend, and they're not all in the same genre. Uh, the first one I, I would suggest is there is a 
book about um, from Kenneth Feinberg that specifically he has a few books that look at how he approaches valuing lives from the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund. And he has another one that walks clearly across all the aspects that he has done. So I would say um, Kenneth Feinberg is a phenomenal source. And I'm not going to get into the specific titles of the books because I just reference him all the time. I would say Frank Ackberg, uh, who has also had a number of books, is very helpful. But I would take us out of the science realm for a second because you wrapped up your point, I think, extremely poignantly. There's the science, and I think you know Kenneth Feinberg and all his books would be a great start. Um, Frank Ackenberg would be another one. But I would very much emphasize literature because that's it allows me to step back from the numbers and ask myself, what is it I value? What is it I believe? So the book that I just reread for about the fifth or sixth time, it's the only novel I've ever read many times, is The Great Gatsby. And... I like reading that because it's a it for me it's about it's about hopes it's about dreams it's about what you aspire to in life and then what life may actually become. And so I would encourage people to really to balance between the two, the science and you know, world-class uh, fiction. You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.